Now the shotgun start in golf is full of mathematics. Um, there's a lot of a lot of setup work that we have to do in order to make a tournament work. So I'm going to demonstrate to you just exactly how we do a shotgun start here. And here we go. All right, all right, all right. Gentlemen, start your Greetings and welcome to a Wednesday edition of the Shotgun Start. It is June third. Andy, how we doing? Brendan, I'm uh, I'm hanging in there. Wild times in the world. <laughs> Wild is a word for it. Definitely, uh, you know, hard to be focused on too much golf or PGA Tour or professional golf in any real way right now. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. It's it seems like it. It's day. It, Everything else in the world's taken a backseat to, you know, our internal issues as a country, as you know, even with the pandemic. Right. Right. Um, I mean, I think like we should speak briefly on this or I don't know, briefly, but, uh, you know, succinctly, impactfully on it, you know, before we dive into a Wednesday, we're going to do a spotlight. We're going to do a little bit of news, you know, it seems like pretty slow right now in the golf world or, or we're just consumed with everything else in the real world. But, uh, before we ramp up next week and, and return to play, I think like, you know, we are just two white podcasters in a primarily white sport. We cannot, um, you know, attest to what it would be like to be an African American and coming up as, an African-American under, you know, uh, racial systemic racism and racial profiling. Um, we are beneficiaries of white privilege, whatever you, you know, may or may want to deny about, you know, whether that exists or not. We, we certainly are beneficiaries of that. Um, we haven't had to, I was, uh, like I was reading Damon Hack's article last night about it. You know, someone who I've come to know working on morning drive and that it hit me pretty hard. Just hearing, he wrote eloquently about it on golfchannel.com and hearing like his experiences. Like he, I can certainly say like he's one of the best humans I, I've come across in this industry and hearing him have to talk about being pulled over for real, no no reason whatsoever. And hearing him talk about being handcuffed or, or frisked in his mother's front yard, like that like really got to me. Like these things are happening whether we want to whether we knew about them or didn't know about them and we've known about them. We've should have been speaking on them louder before this week. It seems like everyone, regardless of affiliation, regardless of what you think of the police, like is speaking on it this week in a, in a way that I don't know, I'm not going to pretend this is going to have long lasting impacts. I hope it does, but it does feel like a, a week where, um, you know, those of us who should have recognized are at least starting to come to, starting to understand it a little better i hope i don't know and those of us who have known about it for a long time or at least recognized it and understood it are are speaking more forcefully and impactfully yeah this week i've spent a lot of time taking in information across the internet and listening to stuff and watching stuff and you just 
the more and more you listen and read and you realize that the the white privilege thing is is something that we live with and and it's def- life is different for us than for yeah. black people it's it's just a it's a matter of fact where you know we haven't had to deal with a lot of the problems that that and things issues and just the way they have to act when you know walking outside on a given day um things you have to think about i thought emmanuel ocho's uh video was really great and i i mean it yeah. opened my eyes to stuff and you know i i i think i'm a relatively conscious person but there are stuff that i hadn't even think about thought about uh talking to different people uh this week so far so i think it's important like to not what what's happening in the wake of this like what what you know what are peaceful protests what's violent looting i think it's like important to understand the underlying causes which we're talking about like a man was a man was murdered in, in minneapolis and that's our products of systemic racism and that is the primary issue here um and that's what i think you're seeing some of this outcry in these protests people are are really uh, have been battling this for a long time and they're at like like what did h just say that this is like the anger phase of dealing with grief mm-hmm. so um you know i i just i think there needs to be more than just the performative social media bullshit. And that's not what we're trying to do right now. We just feel like this is a moment in our country. If we have whatever very small platform in a majority white sport to talk about it for just, you know, a little bit here at the top of the show. And like, I roll my eyes at some of the stuff on social media. Like some of it seems very performative by white people. Like, what do you do next? How do you educate yourself further? How do you talk to your african-american friends how do you support black businesses black communities how do you donate to some of these causes that um are at least combating or movements in in combating systemic racism and uh you know systemic racism in the way the black community is policed um so i I think that's what that's been my next step really over the weekend and into early this week where where can i put my money where can i educate myself who can i listen to more who can i talk to and and lean on really to to make myself ideally a better person or better american so yeah and i think one thing i've kind of thought a lot about is is using our platform here the fried egg and you know doing a better job of highlighting diversity in the game of golf and it's not it's not just black or white it's hispanic it's women um you know they're I think 99% of golf coverage is a vacuum of, you know, the PGA tour and it doesn't necessarily always cover all the other things going on in the game that are great and, and have, you know, diversity in them. So I think that's a big thing for one of the things I've taken away from this is, is just covering it more and building awareness because I think that's what I can do personally, you know? And I think that's what everybody needs to look at is what can you do in your life to, to you know, push push the conversation in, in the right direction. Yeah, that's all I'd say. It was more, it's, it needs to be more than just some like putting a black box on your Instagram account. That's all. So what we can do as a small time podcast is highlight the current diversity, whether you think that's scant or not, we can, we can highlight it we can talk about it more and we can kind of push for more ourselves you know challenge why is there such a scant shortfall of diversity in golf 
And so I think we, we want to do that more going forward beyond just putting a black box on an Instagram account or tweeting about it or talking about it this week because it will continue and, and the discussion needs to and action needs to be uh, continued beyond just this week. Are you upset I put the black box up on Instagram? No. I'm not upset by it. I mean, everyone ended up doing it. I, I don't know like what it all meant. I don't want to get into black box today. Uh, but that's it. I, I think, you know, just recognizing our own privilege and, and uh, trying to highlight diversity in our corner of the world, which is golf. We'll try to do a better job of that. And talk to your friends. Talk to your African-Americans. Check in on them. You know, ask them. And don't be silent, you know. Just being silent in sport is not helpful in this case. So... All right, shall we transition? Yeah, let's go. Is that possible? To news, yeah, it is. <laughs> Quickly, uh, news. We have a what is this potential feeder tour, smaller tour thing that's going on? Brentley Romine has a report here Tuesday. I'm a big fan afternoon. of this. This is uh, I like the flexibility that could be displayed by this. The PGA Tour recognizing that you got a bunch of guys that don't have anywhere to play. So you know if this this potential feeder tour as reported by Brentley Romine of Golf Channel uh would feed would be a place for the you know essentially PGA Tour Latin America, Canada and China that don't have a place to play that this would be a option in America that would provide a I think it is a six event uh rotation and a prize purse of $100,000 I think the big thing, I guess, is to have a hundred thousand dollar purses for each event. Is the hope? So okay. So I think the big thing is that these are fifty four hole events, thirty six hole cuts. Is that it gives these guys a opportunity to stay sharp in a year that's kind of a lost year for a lot of the young players. I mean that it's it's you have status. That's a good thing. You've got a free place to practice at TPCs, but you need to keep playing competitive golf to stay sharp and to progress as a golfer. And this would give them that opportunity. So, um, it, it would be really good. It'd be August to mid October. Um, and you think it's just, it's ideally just a thing to stay sharp, get competitive reps at a level where, where guys can't, that are, there's an opportunity for a ton of them. I mean, one of the things with the Latin American, tour and the canadian tour what it did they it provided this pathway up through the ranks but what it did was it killed the big mini tours uh the hooters tour the e-golf tour yeah the multi-day yeah. places where you could really make money um and if you don't have status on one of those tours and you're a professional you're kind of subjected to what we've seen during this pandemic outlaw, outlaw yeah. the west florida tour the minor league tour and those just aren't places that they're one two-day tournaments they aren't like a hooters tour yeah. event where if you go look at the mid-2000s hooters tour you'll look down the leaderboards and you're like oh kevin kisner ted potter jr like yeah. you see PGA tour player after PGA tour player on those lists, because that was a very competitive dynamic tour. And in a way, these would be very similar to those Hooters tour events. And I think it it could be something that really works. And Hey, maybe this becomes something that is more prevalent because uh, I think that would be, you know, be more affordable for these young kids because playing on Canada for an entire summer or, going traveling yeah. in Latin America isn't really exactly the most affordable option for these guys. There's 
there's like a regional aspect to it, which has had its roots in those, some of those tours, the like Carolinas and you know places like that. Um, do you think it's enough? Should the PGA Tour be doing more to vit, fill this? I, you know, you we always talk about how the um, there's this great discrepancy in web or whatever it is KFT purses, right? Given you know how much money is made on the bigger tour, is there? I think the tour is taking a beating. The slush fund isn't what it was, but uh, should they be? cutting out cleaving out a larger portion to get some more events out there for these kind of tours i mean at a certain extent i um i think this is okay this is this is in the priority of things they need to accomplish this is the smallest one you know maybe not the smallest but it's way down the list and the reality is is that these guys you have to be in the top five to make money. So in a way, by not traveling as extensively, you're saving probably 100 guys a bunch of money this year. Um, they can yeah. play their state opens. They can play. They could go play the Dakotas tour, uh, <laughs> a tour I've always wanted to, to A favorite of yours. I have wanted to yeah. go hit the road with the Dakotas tour. One of the, maybe yeah, this is the absolutely. summer. Uh, but but they could go do other things. There's a couple state opens. There's uh, the Drew Love uh fame uh, the Colorado Open which has a big purse 100,000 to the winner former Drew champion loves moment in the sun yeah, yeah quad loves moment in the sun um, uh so there are options but i like that this gives a very highly competitive aspect of it where these guys the fields are going to be great if you if you've got i mean you're essentially going to have like all all of the great young college players from the last couple of years that aren't on corn ferry tour. Yeah. Yeah. Though the, it could get loaded. It could be really competitive. Yeah. They should be like um, kind of exciting events. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Probably minimal coverage though. Probably not going to have to hear, hear much about it. Well, you get the blue golf maybe Who knows? not going to get any streaming Monday Q might be, might be down. Oh, that's there. a good point. He's been stepping yeah, up his game. Yeah. The Monday Q subsidy. Give, give him a subsidy over there. Um, all right. Other news is the uh, the great historic, the Workday Classic, the Workday Open, the Workday this Challenge. Whatever. <laughs> this one is for Workday. It's now on the uh, schedule. How about that? Uh, little, your little hunch. I think that was more than a hunch. It was a rumor. <laughs> okay. So back-to-back events at Muirfield Village. Which comes first again? The... Uh, the workday, work right? Day and then the invitation. Yeah. 156 work. man field workday. Okay. So that's a maxed out field. 156. <laughs> Down um, to 120 the next week for the inv- traditional invitational. So I think that yep, was the give the... and take where Jack said, hey, I yeah. want the memorial back to normal, but you can have this. Because Colonial is going to be a, a expanded invitational, right? Like 140 something? 144. That was part yeah. of Okay. Okay. So he's back to 120, Jack, but again, putting on a tournament prior to that, week prior to that. Okay. Any any reaction to this? I mean, I think we talked about it. We talked about it. We on, already hit on yeah. it. We did this. Hoping for a substantially different setup. Well, not substantially, but somehow, whatever they can do to make it different. Right? What From are the chances of that? It's limited. Which one would you make hard and which one would you try to make more, you know, make more challenging and make, make more the, benign? the second one more challenging since there's way less players. If you make the first one really play. challenging, the pace of play is just going to be a 
brutal i mean those those are the longest days of the year but yeah it's it's you know they couldn't even get in at the players on time so um all right what do you got anything else on that no no i just it's a odd occurrence you know born out of these weird times you just make do it with what you can so they're going back to back weeks um I'm, i'm sad we're robbed of the potential for a july sawgrass event you know we would have had a lot of fun with that but you know it, it'll be great it, it'll be fine <laughs> two 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 weeks in columbus a buddy texted me uh, about the uh the changed 17th hole he says it's a better hole what were you, the work they're doing now or our proposals to hit back to 16 the 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 current temporary the hole oh <laughs> So what's the temporary situation? It's like a 140-yard shot over some water to some temporary green. or I don't know exactly where it is, but he, he told me he thinks it's a better hole. They have a green out there? or green, where, where are they hitting to? Somewhere in the I don't exactly uh, know where water? it is. I'd have to go back. and I should have prepped this. I didn't think we were even going to touch on this subject, but... But uh, and they say it's a better hole than the. This is just original. one person's opinion, to which oh, okay. I responded. Could you imagine paying five hundred dollars <laughs> to play sawgrass <laughs> and the seventeenth hole not be open? <laughs> is it, I think it's five hundred bucks. I'm not sure what I it is, know. and I don't think they have a discounted rate right now. Wow! Can you imagine yeah, but... that? Imagine being like all geared up, jacked up to go down to play TPC Sawgrass in the seventeenth. Presumably, hole. you would know beforehand i would hope i don't know i I imagine a lot of people don't yeah like what do you think what about a guy that doesn't have social media do you think they sent an email (laughs) warning people i don't don't think i I doubt it he gets there he's just disconsolate so um all right yeah no no two weeks in muirfield village fine great no no complaints they're doing what they can to play a full schedule and dole out FedEx Cup points, Wyndham rewards, things of that nature. All right, real quick, no ad read, but just a heads up. We do have a caption contest ongoing. We're going to close that Wednesday, but we forgot to mention it Monday. And so we'll caption contest on the Instagram account for two. Is it two? Dratty polos? Yeah, two winners. You pick a winner, I pick a winner. Okay, so we'll pick the best caption. Currently ongoing on Instagram um, for an Ernie and Phil. The Junior Worlds photo. And uh, the two winners will get a uh, Dratty Polo. Iconic photo. Sharp. It really is. It really is. You, you went right to that in part one about how he beat Phil in the Junior I mean, that was his first so. big win. <laughs> All right. So we get to our spot. <clears throat> excuse me. Get to our spotlight of the day. Yes. SGS spotlight. So after Ernie, our next subject is Calvin Pete. The greatest African-American golfer since, uh, prior Tiger Woods. We're not doing Calvin Pete as some sort of aid stance statement for the current strife in the country, right? We just thought we should make a commitment and we will make a commitment and we need to make a commitment going forward to highlighting diversity in the game. Pete has been on our list for these spotlights. I've had like more people ask for him than... He, Ray Floyd, a lot of people have been asking for Calvin Pete. There's a lot of a lot of people. Calvin Pete's you know, an amazing story. Yeah. So we thought it would be an opportunity to not only celebrate 
an African-American legend on the tour, but also why hasn't there been a Calvin Pete effect? It's, it's a way to confront the issues that are currently ongoing on the tour, I should say, not in the streets of, of America, but on the tour and, and also celebrate a past legend. Does that make sense? Sound good? Mm-hmm. But in no way do we think this is some sort of panacea or or aid or, or stance. So uh, let's get into Calvin Pete. Give us the nuts and bolts. People have wanted, wanted this spotlight for a while, so let's do it. All right. We'll kick it off. Calvin Pete. You know what his nickname is? Uh, I don't think I saw that. What was it? Cal. I know everybody called him Cal. What In was the past it? life, it was the Diamond Man. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's a cool nickname. This is awesome. That's right. So here's a little tidbit from a uh, Barry McDermott uh, profile on, on Sports, in Sports Illustrated. This is kind of when Calvin Pete burst onto the scene. So, okay. How far a man travels, how much he improves his life from start to finish is a fair gauge of success. By such standards, Calvin Pete is nothing short of exceptional. First of all, there's his color. Pete is a black man in a white man's sport. Also, because of a childhood accident in which left it, his left elbow was fractured in three places, he cannot straighten that arm. Furthermore, he is a product of poverty, one of 19 children his father had in two marriages, an eighth-grade dropout who labored in the fields of south-central Florida with no better prospects than to work like a mule for the rest of his life. Pure chance put him on a golf course for the first time 14 years ago. And finally, Calvin Pete is a golf pro with two diamonds in his front teeth. Now, to be black and a professional golfer, uh, golfer is noteworthy, but to be a black professional golfer with jewelry in your mouth, that is something else. Golf is a grand old game. Content is to be uh, content to be a little musty, a sport in which change comes slowly, but it does change. And Pete is the proof uh, of its evolutionary nature. The roots of black golf are thin, but they exist. The first black golfers, Ted Rhodes and Bill Spiller, came along 30 years ago. Today, they are all but forgotten, but without them, Pete could not be what he is now, a tournament winner and a member in good standing of the PGA Club. So. I would quibble with a little bit with golf changes. I, You know, that was written in 1980, yeah. and now there are fewer African-Americans on tour than that, you know, at the time that was written. But uh, I think that's some of why we want to talk about Pete a little bit more, about what's happened. But let's get into Pete, the character. The, the, I think the, the larger career. takeaway from that is I really love the first line of like a measure of a man's success, you know? Yeah. And, and that's yeah. the thing. I think Calvin Pete's upbringing and, and is different than almost any other pro golfer. I, you know, I'm not sure. So let's get right. I want to know how, how the hell do you end up in golf? How do you end up close to probably anyone like that? You see figures right now that more new people are playing golf than ever before. You know, I don't know if that data is reliable or not. It's data that's being proffered. Right. Mm-hmm. So what, how do we use that moment like this moment to get someone who, thought golf was dumb, couldn't imagine playing golf and becomes, you know, one of the legends of the game. Let's, how do we do that? Maybe they have diamonds in their teeth, whatever, whatever. They don't fit your preconception of a pro golfer. How do we do that now? Let's talk. How did he get there? This is an amazing story of how he started. To play. So he, he, he started playing the game at age 23. <laughs> it's unbelievable. We're going to start with the nuts and bolts though. So he turned pro in 71 
when he was okay. 28. So he turned pro five years after he started playing. First time he ever hit a ball. And then, uh, you know, in, he won, and his first win was 79 GMO. He won the Varden Trophy in 84. He led the tour in driving accuracy 10 times, 10 straight years. 10 straight years. Um, he won. What was his peak was 85%, I think, right? Yeah. He hit 85% of his fairways in 83. He, so. he, um, he led the tour in greens and reg three times during those 10 yeah. years. So he was just a fairway green machine. Like, you know, I always yeah. remember my dad used to give me advice when I was like really young. He was always like, you know, Andy, fairways and greens, fairways and greens. That was his advice. It's like, that yep. was Galvin Pete, fairways and yeah. greens. Yeah. So, um, so from 82 to January of 86, no golfer won more times on the PGA Tour than Calvin Pete. That's important. I mean, he turns pro really late. He's 28. His peak is really short, but there is a five-year story. He's beating Tom Watson. He's outwinning Tom Watson, outwinning Ray Floyd. Jack, like, yeah. Jack was towards the end of his career, but you know, he's out. This wasn't a flash. It was a shorter peak, but it wasn't just a, a hot six months. He was a legend for about five years, outwinning the legends of the game. Yeah, he, the Varden Trophy, he beat out Jack Nicholas. And the, the year before he finished second in it. So, yeah, you know, yeah. um, he played on the Ryder Cup teams in 83 and 85. There's a great story about the first Ryder oh, Cup. Amazing. How he qualified? Yeah. All right, we'll get to that. Uh, 82, he won four times after July. And he finished fourth on the money list. And it was one spot ahead of Tom Watson. Just two other times in the top five of the money list. 85 and 83. Um, he was in the top 10 of, remember we talked about this McCormick's golf rankings, which was preceding the OWGR, which was like an annual thing. Um, so he was in 84 in the top 10 of that. And then when the OWGR debuted in 86, he was a fixture in the top 10 during that year. He has 12 total PGA tour wins in his career. One of which is the players. He had two Japan tour wins also, one of which is the Dunlop Phoenix, who he won over none other than Seve Ballesteros. Um, so getting into his 10-year peak, this is there was something wrong on the PGA Tour website today, so I apologize. I don't have as in-depth numbers as I usually do on this subject because it, frankly, wasn't working. But from 79 to 88, he, in those 10 years, he had 12 wins, 72 top 10s, and one players. Mm-hmm. So now major championships in that same period. He never played the Open championship. Never went to, yeah, never went across the pond. Never played the Open. So he only made 24 S- major starts during those 10 years. Struggled at the Masters, right? Well, he that did not, the long ball, the hills that, you know, everybody. That's what talking, they talked about. Yeah. He yeah. was short and straight. He was not a power yeah. hitter. Yeah. He was much more suited for the narrow fairways of the U.S. Open. Uh, yeah. So in, in from 79 to 88, 24 starts, four top 10s, three, three top fives. And uh, he only missed one cut during the in that ten years in majors, uh, and w- he had one WD, which was at the PGA, which was because of a back injury that actually ended up him taking off, you know, about seven months of time 
yep. and kind of yep. short ended his career. Back yeah, more or less ended it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah. he earned in total two point three million on the tour. Uh, he added another near million on the Champions Tour. Um, and one big thing, he never had a major sponsor. Well, yeah. I mean, the black man was not considered marketable at that time. Never had a major sponsor. 12-time winner on tour. Player's champion. <laughs> Never had any kind of... Imagine, a, I saw that, one article... That to when, Ricky. Yeah. yeah that, there was one article, I think, uh, upon his death, there was uh, like a, an obit-type article. Um, something like, could you imagine that? Like a 12-time winner nowadays having no sponsor that was in the no uh, Augusta, Augusta one right or the Atlanta Atlanta New Atlanta, New Atlanta, Atlanta Journal yeah. Constitution yeah he goes you win 12 times now you're making 50 million off tour off off the course which is what his friend said so um, um so one of 19 children you've got four can you yeah. imagine having 19 no I can't I can't and he had like seven, right? In his first marriage and two more in his second? Yes. Uh, um, a lot of kids. No, I can't imagine. I mean, that was a different time. You hear about some of these families, like 11, 12 kids growing up. 19, I don't know. So he was the youngest <laughs> of nine of his father's first marriage. And then his father moved to Florida and he moved with him yeah. down there. And then he yeah. became the de facto oldest of his father's oldest. next 10. It's kind of incredible. It's nuts. So he's born in Detroit. The ten, first 10 years of his life there, they sent him to a, his, uh, his, his grandma's place in like rural Missouri, the boot heel of Missouri called Haiti. And he goes, I guess you could call it a farm. There's like a few animals. Um, he goes, it's better than the streets of Detroit. And I saw one thing, like it had no roof, there were holes in the roof. He would like look at the stars, land on a cot at night. And he like had to get out of there because he was a city boy. And, and his dad took him from Missouri to uh, to Pahokee pa- in Florida. Yeah, great. Just kind of. Lots, s- lots of football, great football players from Pahokee. Yes, a lot of great football. So it's kind of central, above the Everglades, central Florida. Um, and, you know, he he starts he becomes the oldest of like his dad's second wife's family wife with his second family with his second wife it's kind of nuts the youngest to the oldest in between almost 20 kids and he uh so at age 12 he falls out of cherry tree that's the big thing was this referenced in every single article you read about him yes Everything about him. He can't my, straighten his arm. My his favorite left arm. one was there was one article I can't remember which one was talking about how like described how he walked down the fairway because he can't you know most people yes. walk with their arms hanging and he it looks like he's holding this he's holding the stairwell uh, like case right or like a a, a a suitcase or something walking down like a stairwell as they talked I mean. If Woozy is short, the wee Welshman, the Calvin Pete, they could not go, you know, a paragraph without talking about how he can't straighten his arm because he fell out of a tree when he was 12 years old. Didn't it break in multiple spots? Three places. His elbow, three places. And they didn't set it right. And he could never straighten his left arm after that, ever, which, you know, most people would say is a hindrance to having a, a 
sound golf swing and he said it was an advantage by the end of the you know further along in his career yeah i mean conventional wisdom says you gotta have a, a straight left straight arm, left but his point yeah. was like my left arm doesn't move it's like a, yeah yeah <laughs> so i know where the left arm's gonna be <laughs> uh so he falls out of a tree broke his arm i mean he quit school after eighth grade he'd rise at 5 30 and he would you know, he'd pick vegetables, right? With it, yeah. Assortment of vegetables. I saw lettuce. Corn. It, corn in these fields in Central Florida, um, South Central Florida. This is very hard work. It was demanding. The pay was low. For corn, you might get a dollar an hour, but you're usually paid by the bushel. Uh, it was demeaning to me, he said. I had no standing at all, and it was about as low as you could get. So I, I saw it in an article. He talked about how he, you know, one of his first... You can tell when you read about Pete how he set goals. You know, he set, like, he kind of always was setting the next goal to the next run. And, like, his first dreams were becoming one of the people that that made the baskets at the farm because they got to sit in the shade and they got paid more. So his first, you know, what he wanted to accomplish was becoming one of the people that, you know, made the baskets rather than pick the vegetables. Um, so, so the diamonds in the teeth, he becomes this 18, you know, at age 18. So instead of, you know, he quit, he's first like a day laborer out in the fields and he figures out there's these guys that would come over and like sell wares out of their trunk, right? Peddlers, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you could get a license for it and you could buy, you know, the, the migrant workers would buy whatever suits. Or just trinkets, things out of the the, the trunks of these car, uh, and he wanted this was like the next step, like you talked about, right? And uh, so that he transitions out of like far out of farm work to to being one of these I don't know peddlers, I think was the name of it, he, official name. I think what I read was he he was able to get a car because he he leveraged on his like his grandmother helped him get the car. Which is yeah. what he would drive from Florida to Rochester, New York, in this car, and he would pedal goods. So find the farms and pedal goods, yeah. sell them, and and like having the diamond teeth was what like thought to be more appealing. You'd be like a better salesman if you had the diamond teeth. Like so the, here, the here's what Barry McDermott SI uh, profile yeah. that we read the intro uh, from. He, so- yep. he sold clothing and trinkets and gaudy jewelry to migrant workers. His customers came to know him and buy from him because he was the diamond man. Instinctively aware of what image meant, Pete persuaded a dentist to install two diamond chips in his bridge work at, at the front of his mouth. So it was all part of his, he, he knew this would help him sell. Yeah. Yeah. He was just a guy it's... that would just figure stuff out. Right. Right. And so how did he come into golf? He's just oh, traveling all on. around. What? So Go ahead. another Go ahead. important thing. So he met this guy in Fort Lauderdale while he was doing that, while he was a peddler. And this yeah. guy was helped him get into real estate. So he gets into real estate and this guy's letting him buy apartments for $400 down. And at this, by the age like 25, uh, he has like 200,000 plus in, in real estate in South Florida. Oh, yeah. He owns right. all these, these apartments. 
Yeah. So he mm. he's now a peddler, but also kind of building up this real estate property. And then, you know, so so this is from McDermott's Pete. Uh, note, if you will, that in a ten year span, Pete has progressed yeah. from uh, farm laborer to peddler to apartment house owner. He was twenty three years old and ready to be overwhelmed by golf. While he was selling, uh, while he was on a selling trip up north, a couple of buddies persuaded him to go to a fish fry, but they took him instead to a public golf course. Pete, who thought uh, of golf as dumb as a dumb game, played a few holes and was hooked. It, this is unbelievable. How he just fell into. He shot. 87. He thought it was dumb. Had no interest in it. Assumed he would have no interest in it. I, I, hearing him talk about this first round and, and it was kind of romantic, right? Yeah. He's like, I, I had no ride home from whatever this event. He was up in, was it Genesee Valley Park, I think was the name of the course. And, you know, these these were my ride, this this was my ride home and they said they were going to play golf and I had to play golf. Do you do you want the passage from the Kenny Moore SI piece? Yes. Okay. Yes. He's, he's so, like, I, I just fell in love with this it. This is Calvin Pete talking. This is a SI, Cal, a Kenny Moore article um is from like 83 i think they had said uh they had said we were going to clam bake pete says instead here was this golf thing i couldn't get a ride home so i went along with the fool idea before that the only contact i'd had with a golf ball was when i was nine or ten when we still lived in detroit i recall playing with one in an alley being fascinated with how high it bounced when you threw it against the concrete I thought, hey, it takes more than a notion to get the ball to go where you want it. It was a challenge that I don't know how to put it. It was my challenge. He yet he was clearly a natural. The first time he played a full eighteen hole round, he shot eighty seven. A year and a half later, he was breaking par, an accomplishment the, the more remarkable because of his bent left arm. Uh, it's just this unbelievable legend. Oh, that's how you get into golf. That's how you become a ten-time, you know, time, driving accuracy 12 leader, twelve-time winner. Like because some friends, like you're twenty-three, and your ride home says you got to come play, and you fall in love with the challenge of it. It's kind of unbelievable. You know, like I, it's a crazy story. I like the only one that I think like even sniffs it like in modern by modern standards is like. It's not. It doesn't even sniff it. But like, it's the only one I could possibly compare. And like, is Ian Poulter turning pro as a four handicap? <laughs> like, yeah. that's the only thing that I can even like relate at the at the to this story. Yep. Yep. He was natural. He shoots eighty seven. So year and a half, he's breaking par. Um. You know what else? He, so he he falls in love. He just becomes like a a, a, a Faldo esque like ball beater, right? You know, he's he's hitting balls on the range till his hands are bleeding. He didn't even he taught himself the swing, read some books, read like Hogan's book, read a few other books, teaches himself the swing like in a field, right? Under uh, like with some street lights near some some in central south central Florida. Yeah, I mean sometimes he they he would wake up in the middle of the night and just go yeah. hit balls in the dark. Completely obsessed. <laughs> um, go ahead. Yeah, he'd hit balls under streetlights, and then you know sometimes the uh, locals would call the police on him. There's a lunatic hitting golf balls in the middle of the night. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, so he had a motor-driven camera mounted on a tripod. He learned how to grip when he went to buy a golf club because the salesman of the golf club took a long look at his right hand, blistered and raw from holding clubs incorrectly and showed him the right way. He learned how to grip just from trying to, because he had to go buy a glove. Uh, he's just hitting and picking up his own balls, shagging in his own shag ball, a shag bag. Um, and, and that was it. Ta- completely self-taught around Fort Lauderdale, public park. So, so then he turns pro, 71. I like the gambling thing about when he played. It, he thought he was going to be a pro. So like when he was had before he turned pro, like he was gambling, they insisted they play metal instead of stroke play because yeah. that's how, or uh, instead of match play, it's like because that's what the pros do. I, I need practice, you know, it's, it's metal play. And so when he was gambling, uh, like and getting better and learning to play, that's what he wanted to do. He he and he became he wanted to turn pro because he watched uh he watched TV he watched it on TV for he couldn't he said he could never watch a full round on TV because it would just yeah. oh he'd always have to get up and go work on his game. But he yeah. he learned that Nicholas was making over two hundred thousand dollars <laughs> a year playing golf, and then he became obsessed with turning pro. Uh, you know. It's, yeah, three years, I think, after he started playing before he saw his first event on TV, right? Yeah. So he'd been playing. The first pro tournament he saw was the one in which he played. So he never saw one up close. Kind of nuts. Yeah. First pro event he saw was the one in which he played. PGA and he just tour. barely watched. Yeah, I'm sorry. First tour event. So, the you know, barely watched TV because he wanted to go out and practice. So, barely watched the event. So go 71, ahead. five years after he starts playing, he turns pro. He doesn't get his PGA tour. He doesn't get his card the first two years in Q school. First, yep. So he 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 played in black tournaments that were mini tour events. Um, and in those days, he wore shiny boots with golf spikes, and he drove a Cadillac. He says it was maroon. Others recall that it was pink. Pink Cadillac. Jim Simons remembers Pete in 72. Simons had turned pro after an outstanding amateur career and was honing his game uh, at mini tour events around Tampa. And one of them, he and Pete tied for the title. I was really playing good, Simons recalled. I thought, how did this black man ever tie me? He found out quick enough in the playoff. On the first hole, he drove it right down the middle, then wedged it to a foot, uh, to a foot from the hole. And that was that. Just dusted him in the playoff. Yeah. Wearing boots. <laughs> With spikes on him, though. He put spikes on him, right? <laughs> I think he had golf spikes on him. I don't, don't try to like insert your golf shoes don't matter take in this in this spot. Uh, so he, he struggles, though, early on at the pro level, right? He, it's an amazing ascent. Obviously, he plays golf for the first time, 23. But his first few years... He, once he he goes over to a Q school, then once he gets on tour, it, it's a struggle, right? That's like he said when he first met his biggest, like the, the most challenging part of learning is his ascension, I should say. Yeah, and, and so like an important thing here, like this comes in later, um, later in 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 his kind of story is when he remembers his roots. But he he said, yeah. Um, when I first started thinking about turning pro, he used that camera you talked about to film myself and study my moves. I figured I could learn more from watching myself than from watching others. Now, wherever I go, I carry videotapes of me hitting the ball really well. If I have problems, I give myself a lesson. 
So something you kind of touched on, but you know, full context because it comes up later. Okay. Uh, do you want to talk about like, so you talk about why he turned pro and how he thought he could get on tour. You know, he saw Nicholas was making that much money and he wanted to make, but he also, he obviously gives a lot of credit to those who came before him. Charlie Sifford, Lee Elder, um, Bill Spiller, Ted Rhodes. He talked about, you know, being first is a whole different song. So like he knew there were black players on tour already and he saw that Nicholas was already making good money. And this kind of sparked his, his desire to, to continue pursuing golf. So he, he fully credits the players ahead of him. I mean, yeah, that went 19... through a lot of stuff. I mean, yeah, that's a, yeah. So it's a, that's a massive spotlight in its own right. Yeah. But, we'll, uh, we'll save that, you know, but I think, you know, it's worth context for this. 1961, the PGA had to struck down the, the Caucasian clause from its bylaws. You know, it wasn't the tour that was the PGA of America. Yeah, tour. where they couldn't hold, black players couldn't hold cards, but they could play an individual tournament if, the, if yeah. a tournament director gave them a spot. So, you know, like there's a story uh, where... Um, At the Phoenix, right? Uh, yeah, I, I mean... Sifford, you know, would play and, you know, he said he would say, you know, he would play it on 64. He never played below the Mason-Dixon line, you know. Yeah, um, yeah. There's all kinds of yep. stuff. We can do that in a whole spotlight. Or we, like Spiller would Spiller would show up and like wait to get a spot or maybe not get a spot. There's all sorts of stories on, on like certainly guys who came before Pete. But I think the, the thrust of it is that Pete like knew black golfers were out there now with some of these antiquated racist clauses had been you know challenged and pete didn't necessarily have to bear the brunt of that yeah it, it in, in la times uh it was actually in calvin pete's obituary uh there was a quote from calvin pete for me it's a cakewalk it's been a cakewalk i'm no pioneer yeah. but i hope i can serve as an inspiration to black youth to take up this game yep so um you know, one thing about his practice practice routine is even after he learned how to grip the club properly, his hands would be raw because he hit so many yeah. balls, and he would cut out Dr. Scholl's foot pads and put them in his golf clubs to ease the pain. Oh, my God. Didn't it, wouldn't it be seven hours a day of practice, even like when during tournament weeks, like, uh, you know, during non-tournament days, I think they said? Yeah, I mean, it was crazy. He he practiced on a baseball field, hitting balls to spots. He'd hit them to the bases. Uh, okay, so he turns pro. He struggles a bit. Where, where do you want to go through, like, with the breakthrough? You want to you hone in on that? Um. So one... So he wins just over twenty thousand each of his first three years. Yeah. Um, yep. So he Pete practiced and drove himself so hard, cutting corners on food and accommodations that friends worried about him. Often he would finish playing and then have to repair his automobile in order to drive to the next pro stop. The Cadillac, the Cadillac. had traveled one hundred and sixty thousand miles when it finally expired. I mean, like one hundred sixty five. Six hundred sixty thousand miles in nineteen eighties a lot different than now. Yeah. So he looked just while we're on these early years. This is what he talked about. He's like, I, I wasn't flamboyant, but I was excitable. So you know, I'd hit an iron close and birdie, and I'd get real excited inside, and then I'd want the next hole. I'd bogey it, and I didn't feel like playing anymore. So like he could really swing quickly. Uh, he's like, I, I wasn't. 
I kept to myself. I wasn't flamboyant. I was, I, but I would get excited internally. And he goes, I learned how to be Calvin Pete on the golf course. I, of course, I know that that's easier said than done or taught, but I spent time alone reflecting on my nature. I enjoyed being alone. I love to drive six or eight hours by myself from one tournament to another. And I inherited it from my father, like in solitude. Anyway, anyway, I finally came to realize that a round of golf isn't over until the 18th green. I learned to save my emotional reaction, good or bad, for after that. I, so that emotional reactions were kind of weaving their way into these first few years. That's where he was really struggling. I love that that snippet because that's so much about you know golfers becoming their best selves is i think that's underrated not not everybody always is like oh you should act like ernie ells on a golf course well like you should only act like ernie ells if you're ernie ells and what he said there and synthesized it so beautifully like i had to become calvin pete on the golf course is like because that's that's what takes these golfers to the next level is is and it's like you know it's so counterintuitive to the to golf in general like where he's self-taught he figured it all out himself and you know every swing has its unique thumbprint but then people with their attitude always say oh act like this guy but really you need to just act like yourself on the golf course yeah and and he really you know you might get the impression because he had the flashy car or the shoes that he was like, um, I don't know, flamboyant on the court. He says, you know, I was not that. He he became really a deadpan sort of presence, an Ernie type, but you know, you know, really deadpan Calvin Pete. That was his like trademark, right? He would be sort of unaffected by you know poor stretches. That became his trademark, really. Um, not not the Tiger Woods fist pump. Not the Phil leap for joy. Like he was really more of a deadpan presence. Um, so breakout. All right. Yeah. He wins the nineteen seventy nine Greater Milwaukee Open tournament. That you know, lots of historic moments from the GMO and in, in the history of the game of golf. <laughs> yep, Tiger. Right. I was thinking Lauren Roberts, <laughs> the boss of the moth. Yeah. People keep talking, sending us clips of how they renamed the putting green of mossy oak yeah laurel lauren roberts putting green i like that you know the shotgun start immediately flagged that the audience flagged that for us so, so all right so 79 uh, gmo it kind of sets the tone pete had this uh a knack for just dusting fields that's what i found kind of really impressive in doing this six shot wins three shot wins five shot like I think just, only one of his wins by was a stroke. He was never in playoffs, one playoff in his career, and he had one one-shot win. They were always by a large margin. I think it, it has to do with his putter, which we can get into more when we... Yeah, uh, we'll, because, get, we'll get into that. Because I think whenever his putter got hot, he was winning. Yeah, <laughs> that, yeah. That was pretty much pretty much game over. So um, he birdied... Six of his last or of his first twelve holes on Sunday to win by five shots. Um, so you know he'd never won more than twenty five twenty one thousand a year, and he wins thirty six thousand at that to win the at the Milwaukee. Um, he sets a tournament record nineteen under. Uh, he only made one bogey the entire week. Yep, first win came in a hot stretch, right? I mean, yeah. he was like. 11th in the u.s open i want to say mm-hmm. preceding that yeah he runner up the next week of quad cities 
uh, I think he had seven top tens and like a hundred, almost 125 grand in earnings, 27th on the PGA money list. Big breakthrough. And he's like, you know, I think it was McDermott that wrote like, but more important than the money, it was like the realization that he was finally a fixture on the pro circuit. He belonged. So top 30 money list and his first win. Uh, So, all right, that's it. That's go ahead. That's, that's, then he kind of goes through some years where he doesn't win a lot. He doesn't win at all. 79 though, by the way, what is he? 30, 36, I think 36. Yeah. 36. Right. Yeah. First win at 36. He hasn't been pro that long. Uh, okay. So, so he has a couple, a couple fallow years. And he talks about this is what happened was he was working hard. Like he was hitting tons of balls, but what he stopped doing was working hard in the sense of studying. So he had stopped looking at his swing and looking at okay. the videotapes and he lost this. And that's all of a sudden in 82, he has, you know, a great year and it breaks Goes out. On a tear. And, um, you know, people at this time, this is everybody he his wife christine pete was uh would always walk with him you know and she was a school teacher one thing that we we glossed over here was she was so fundamental because she when he turned pro because she provide she was a english teacher and she provided yep. some financial means for them so yep. that was that was a big part of this is that she kind of was her was the backing and what made it you know, a feasible thing for him to turn pro, but the, uh, and only be making 20 grand those first few years or miss Q school a couple of times, mm -hmm. you know, she was really like crucial. And she talks about how she, she knew, you know, she believed he was going to make it based on the work ethic. She always knew. Go ahead. So everybody's saying, Oh, you know, he can't putt. He's contending a ton, (laughs) but he can't putt. So (laughs) during those years, Christine, who would walk with him at all the tournaments, bought a radio headset because when she walked in, when she and would wear it, uh, when she walked in the galleries, because she was so tired of hear, hearing people say, "If only Calvin learned to putt." That's all became such a narrative trope in every article. That and the arm, the arm, yeah. and he can't putt. But there's, I mean, if we're on the topic, there's a later anecdote about how like. The stats aren't kind to him because he's hitting every green. Well, this was before it's kind of like the, the modern day strokes stuff. game. <laughs> yeah, whereas these other guys are hitting in a bunker or greenside, chipping up to two feet. Calvin's on the green and, and he's taking more putts. You know, it's like a precursor to the whole uh, strokes gain issue. So, but that that's why like there was some data that would support this notion that he couldn't putt, but you know, it got skewed. And, and I think some of the people understood that, but not a lot. So. so, all right. So 82 is like the real run. You, did you find the fundamental, like the, the huge moment in his career? What it was? No, maybe I did. I don't know what you're referring to. Though. He was paired with Jack Nicholas in the final oh, yeah. round of the 82 U S open PGA. Or I'm sorry, Pebble Beach. Pebble sorry, Beach, Pebble. Duel in the yep. Sun with Tom Watson. Um, duel. duel in the Sun is Turnberry. Oh, whatever. I know that. 82 Pebble Beach, when Watson chipped in, Calvin Pete was paired with Jack as he was making his run. Um, so he says, I can't, uh, I can't p- 
pinpoint any specific moments that were decisive for me. But seeing his concentration, this is Jack Nicholas, how he tuned everything out was impressive. He was there to try to win. To that time, I was still a golfer who just wanted to do well, but Jack tried to win. The whole round, it was there, that concentrated, constant will to win. I felt that by comparison mentally, I'd been holding myself back. It made me realize that I was a, a good player, finally. Like, this is where he just, like, all of a sudden, self-belief crystallizes. And it was so interesting yep. to read him, ta- read him talk about that. Playing with Jack. Like, you you don't hear players say that now. Like he, he realized like people will say, Oh, I just didn't have it today. Like he was so candid in the sense of, like I found, I figured out that he like tried to win and I hadn't been trying to win, you know? Yep. So what happens after that? 82. Two weeks, uh, two Open. weeks after that, he wins the Anheuser-Busch uh, golf classic, Williamsburg, Virginia. September, he wins the BC open by seven shots. Shot 69, 63, 64, well, 69. He won Milwaukee again yeah, he first. Did, oh, yeah, that's true. So he wins Milwaukee again for a second win. Then he wins the Anheuser Bush. Then he won the BC Open, like you said, by seven. Then he wins the Pensacola Open by seven again. And uh, only and at that point, so he ends the year with four victories tied with Craig Stadler, who is the leading money winner. Just amazing. Plays the U.S. Open, then wins... July 11th, July 25th, September 5th, October 24th. That year in 1982, four wins. So Jack said some stuff about his game after that that U.S. Open. He said, um, a, good, a good, a very good player. Uh, actually, this is a story he recalls from Nicholas. Yep. Uh, yep. There was a day when I was playing with Nicholas and I hit a shot he liked. A two iron from oh. two a one ninety into the wind without taking a divot. He asked me to teach him that, and I said, "You're asking me." He was good about it. He said, "You can play this game for fifty years and still be learning." It was just a, a cool little story. I mean, this is like early '80s, Nicholas. Yeah, you know, he's already established as the goat at that point, right? Yeah, it's pretty cool. Cool story. Um, all right, should we? I, I wanted to quote more from this Kenny Moore. Yes, SI the, article, the Sandy Tatum stuff. Yeah, so cool. 19, so this is 1983, after that run in 82, where he won in July a couple of times. Um, he's playing in the Crosby with Sandy Tatum, who at that point was former. I think he was former USGA president. Yeah, yeah. I think he had already served, but still an absolute titan legend in the game, um, had been the USGA president. Great player and, in and his, his own right. <laughs> yes. he's, he's Pete's amateur partner. Um, what was your, let it rip. What was your favorite Tatum quote? I've got a few in here. I mean, there's so many. I, I, you go first. I'll, I'll, he doesn't, he doesn't have the physical equipment of Watson, Tom, the left arm must impose some limits in working the ball, but he's a, but he's a realist. He's developed the avenues open to them, open to him and perfected them. It's rewarding to see what he has accomplished, not with raw talent, but with intelligence. But think about how he had to be aware of the struggle he faced and how great his act of faith to believe in the face of those odds that he could be competitive. Um, go ahead. And then you- another another line. It was an extraordinary experience for me. Tatum, I'm playing with Pete. 
He's as competent a striker of the ball as I've ever seen, with the sole and singular exception of Ben Hogan. And he strikes it identically, time after time. In the whole in the whole of the Crosby, he only hit three bad shots. Kind of incredible. Sandy Tatum saying, Pete, it is, it's a privilege. It was an extraordinary experience. This, Never seen it like except for Hogan. The, the last kind of part is I, I thought was, was great. It occurred to me that his background may be, a help, uh, may, may be a help to him there. Having gone through what he has gone through, things like the breaks on a golf course don't seem so bad. I'm convinced his impact will transcend golf, that he's going well beyond where he is and will be an exemplary figure. And, you know, that it was there that he talked about his roots, the Rochester event, you know? Mm-hmm. You quoted that. The physical sensitivity of the man was suddenly absorbed in the task of playing golf, the challenge of making a ball go where he needed to go. He, he starts to open up about that Rochester, fall in love. Um, did you like his quotes about just pure golf? Yes, I loved him. For it's this is this is the heart of, of the fundamental I, I, lesson like it, it just everything in stages me, this was this was it for me to be able to control the ball to hit 14 fairways and 18 greens is as rewarding as making a 20 foot putt on the last hole to win a major championship and someone like butts in in this article interview like what that's heresy you know maybe not what michael jordan would say I think Michael Jordan won it all in the championship, but he talks about control, controlling the ball. And someone says, that's crazy. He goes, right, but that's my objective. Scoring is just not as important to me as hitting the ball. How I shoot 68 or 69, how I shoot 68 or 69 is more important to me than the fact of doing it. I recognized that very early, recognized it as something in myself and in the game. Consistent control was and is the prime thing, and I'm still learning it. That's where the fundamental satisfaction comes from. The money, the recognition, those are what follow. They're not the primary things. Um, I just got, I mean, that's like another, I've almost found like romantic quote, right? Like, sure, you, you want to win tournaments, but the real joy in him was being able to control the ball, being able to work away, strategize, and then execute that strategy. Work around his way around the course. That was the real reward for him. I love that. Quote. I mean, he just had such a simple approach to the game of golf. Like it was incredible. It, it was like it, I don't know if it was like it. It just like was his the way he thought about the game was so clear to me. Because like the next the, another thing he says is when I first got interested in golf, my goal was to break eighty, then seventy five, then scratch, then to improve my short game then to go on to tour, then to qualify on Mondays, then to make cuts, then to make uh, make the top 25 in a tournament, then the top 10, then finally to think of winning. The reason I probably didn't play well at first was I that I got ahead of what was possible. I just felt everything would come together and I'd go 94th to first. It I didn't. It's just like those those like simple milestones. Yeah. I I think like Today and today on tour, and certainly through the history of some in some of these spotlights, you could doubt whether a person loves golf, right? A player or a pro loves golf. It was maybe just a gift they were given. Um, reading these quotes, there's like no doubt about what he loved. Like maybe some object players' objectives are just to win, make a ton of money, 
pile up wins, pile up a resume, um, you know, stay in the top 50 in the world, only go play events that'll help my OWGR, whatever. Like reading these quotes, like Pete, like found the real reward and joy in just controlling the ball and playing golf. Um, and I, that had the biggest impact on me in, in uh, reading this art, this specific article. Yeah. He, I mean, he was great. I, I think, I think even nowadays you see some of these like just technologies and systems for how to try and like game, uh, you know, game a tournament or things like that, or game a course or, or whatever, or game a swing. Like, it just seems so antithetical to what, you know, maybe your task is just to win and have a professional career, but it seems antithetical to why so many other people love golf. The people who shoot 95, right? Like, it's the one time you did have control or the ball did what you wanted it to do. And you're like, that just kind of pours through in in that particular passage for me. It might have been because he was so green to the game that his view was such, you know? Yeah. That he hadn't yeah. been, you know, great forever, you know? Yeah. I think that's yeah. something that it might be why his perspective was so fresh, you know? Yep. Um, so he uh, he qualifies for the 83 Ryder Cup based off of merit, but he's got one big hurdle. <laughs> so 82, he's, he's a four-time winner. He goes into 83. He's runner up at the clamp bank and he won again in 83 right i think he did yeah yeah. he won twice more in 83 but you know he's likely rider cut but there's a big hurdle what is it he didn't graduate from high school yeah right he didn't have a diploma (laughs) the pga of america you know you have to be a member uh and the pga had a rule aromatic of golf's musty social codes that only high school graduates need apply this like makes me think of the Azinger story, right? About how he hadn't taken his like etiquette class at PGA of America. And he wasn't able for the, to play the Ryder Cup when he was clearly the money winner or money leader on the PGA Tour. Whatever yeah. that was, 87 or something when we did Faldo. Uh, but he didn't have a diploma. So he wasn't going to well, so be selected. He could have challenged this. There, yes. he, were, this is cool. Yeah, I told him. Uh, so his his attorney said, "I told him that rule about the diploma couldn't be enforced in any court." Um, his attorney was Stephen Frank. He said, "No, I'm gonna break. I'm not gonna break any rules. Uh, the people who want who went before me lived to that rule. I will too." Kind of amazing. He says, "You know, he's one of the best players on tour. One of the best players in the world. There aren't world rankings." Should be on the Ryder Cup, but there's some rule about having a diploma that he can easily challenge. He goes, no, the people before me had to live by that rule. I'm going to, too. So he studied to get his, uh, is it the GAD, four-year high school equivalency test. In, in Detroit. So he does it in Detroit. Uh, his wife's a teacher. Yeah. She tutors him with, he, he studies math, history, geography, and English, and took the four-hour test. Basically, he applies his work ethic to golf to studying for, for a couple months. He he passed it. He passes it, but all the Ryder Cup points he had accrued prior to passing ended up not counting. What is that? A, it, really? I didn't see that. Yeah. Yes. So he passed, but all the Ryder Cup points he'd been amassing didn't count. Only those he earned after his diploma are valid. And his lawyer says he'll he'll make the team anyway. Um. And. Kind of inst- it's kind of crazy. His wife was like, if they don't let him on, like he should be on no matter what. It was 
kind of amazing. He just goes and does it, even when he could have challenged it in court. And he does make the Ryder Cup team, 83 Ryder Cup team. Um, so I found a New York Times. Uh, there's a New York Times article by Ira um, Finkman, I think. Uh, let me see. Ira Burkow, um, yeah. where he talks about that. And he said, yeah. let me just, I lost my spot here. No, you're good. Um, you're good. He said, I remember sitting down in the classroom, said Pete. My hands were sweating, and I felt more nervous than I did looking at a big putt on the 16th hole in the Milwaukee Open. <laughs> he was more nervous about this test than, than like coming down the stretch trying to win, win a tour event. You're kind of incredible. Uh, he was just like, uh, I don't know. He was just really ecstatic, obviously. You know, deservedly so, though. Um, you know, there's also in this more article, he talks about how he encountered some, like, you know, he had some incident with a in Tampa. But, but like, you know, by and large, he says he heard more anecdotes like people saying he's good for golf. And there's like an element of tokenism in that, for sure, you know? Yeah. Like, he's good for golf. And he goes, you know but every athlete feels pride in and protective of his sport. So he's trying to be protective of golf other than beating a ball around. You want to share to teach. And so he, you know, started using some of his money uh, for clinics on inner city neighborhoods. So, uh, I just thought that was, you, we didn't hear there aren't, there isn't a ton about like what he had to go through from, uh, you know, being a minority on tour. Right. He try, tends to credit elder and, you know, the, the players who came before him. This was one where he said, you know, there are occasional challenges, but I hear more often than not, I'm good for golf. So, um, you, what else from that 83 about, article? Uh, uh, I, that's all I got. What did you have more? No. I mean, to be clear, he was probably facing immense challenges. It was much more yeah. difficult. We'd already talked about how he couldn't get a freaking sponsor, but he really never, you know, disclosed it. Uh, certainly in, in the writing at the time. In uh, he in that Ryder Cup, he went two and one as a rookie. Okay, and narrow win. Who do you beat? Do you have? Oh, I don't. Oh, know. the overall win. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah overall win. Narrow, narrow win for the U.S. So he goes two and one in his first Ryder yep. Cup. Um, yep. you want to go to eighty-five? Yes. Players. Wins the players. Breaks Fred Couple's scoring record by three. Which was set the year before, right? 84, we talked about in the couple's spotlight. Mm-hmm. So he, um, he starts the day tied with Hale Irwin and D.A. Wybring. You know, Hale Irwin's a legend. Hey, why is there a golf? Why, why are golfers from Illinois named <laughs> D.A.? What is that all about? about? You knew I was going in on that? I, 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 was, I was like, uh, <laughs> What is this all about? I don't know. It's a central Illinois thing. They make a, th- they make a point of saying D.A. Wybring's from Illinois, central <laughs> Illinois. Now we got DA points. What is this? I'll ask. Is DA I'll, points I'll, an homage to Wybring? Is that why he goes by DA? I don't know. I don't. I don't know. I don't, I don't. But that is noted in this eighty-five players recap. I love that you knew I was going <laughs> to talk about. I read that. when I read that I was like, uh, Brendan reads this. He's going to ask. Do me you about do DA. you know the gender of your child? No. Are you going to? You don't need. But whether it's a boy or a girl, can you go by the initials? Just on the off chance he or she is a golfer from Illinois. Just make it a DA, and she'd be DA Johnson. Whether if she ma- he or she makes it, it's feasible. It's feasible. Can you sell that to Mrs. Friday? 
Yeah, I gotta, I gotta work. I got, but that's a possibility. <laughs> All right, think of some names. The next great DA from Illinois. All right. All right. So 85 players, he breaks the record. So he uh, starts the day tied with Hale or what in a DA Wybring. Uh, here's yeah. a quote from Wybring. I thought if I shot under par on the back nine, I could win. win. Shrugged Wybring, who fired a 32 four under coming home. I did what I wanted and still lost by three shots. That tells you something about the way Cal played. Uh, here's Irwin. Uh, I could have had every good bounce and break there was, and I couldn't have beaten Cal. Kind of amazing. I, I, I highlighted that quote, too. Uh, so one thing I found about this, Couples had won the year before, but Beeman really thought this was like the breakthrough for his championship. Yes. Like, I can feel it in the air. There's a point where Pete says, like, I think this is a major or it feels major to me. Um, and Beeman was like out there following Pete's group. He's like, something special is happening. Um, you know, it was obviously an important moment in the history of, uh, golf's, you know, underwhelming racial history. So it was an important moment for that. But Pete was already very well established on tour. Um, but Beeman sort of recognized that and sort of thought it was like a stake in the ground moment for the players as a championship, which I think was what, like 10 years old at that point, 11 years mm-hmm. old at that, at that point. But it had only um, been at player at uh, Sawgrass yeah. for a few years. Yeah. How about the greens? They talk about how they're burnt toast. Yeah. <laughs> you never didn't know where the ball was going. The grass had died. Did you see stuff. Lee Trevino? Lee Trevino yeah. shrugged and said, you can't read dirt. They, the trouble was that the harsh winter had kept the newly seeded bent grass from filling in, leaving greens in poor shape. Did you see the longer stuff in this too? Yeah. Flipped out, right? It's got some slow play penalties. He's like, this will definitely affect me tomorrow. He's already saying that on, what was it, Friday night? He yeah. was the He was leading. Leader. So in the TPC, uh, longer opened with a 68 and then went out in 31 on Friday. When he buried the first hole, his tenth hole, he was leading the tournament at ten under par. But things included, uh, but things including a warning about slow play started to get under his skin, and he bogeyed four of the last seven holes. He was also informed by PGA Tour official Glenn Tate on the final fairway that he was being fined five hundred dollars for slow play. And the press room steaming longer said, I couldn't protest. If I had talked <laughs> to him for 20 seconds, he could have fined me again. Then he added, this, is, th- this will definitely affect me tomorrow. A prediction that appeared painfully accurate on Saturday when still in contention at 600, longer had two balls in the water at the 18th. His third one bounced off a wooden pl- piling on onto the fairway, but he still wound up with the triple bogey seven, which took him out of the tournament. Just goes completely sideways because of slow play. It calls his own shot too. Like it's completely open about it. I'm I'm gonna be a mess, and he was a mess after getting dinged. Um, so, Pete got a slow play penalty on Sunday. Yeah, did you see I that? Saw, or a warning? I should warning. say a warning. But yeah, he started with a birdie on one. I think he had two woods on the par five second. Right, made birdie there, mm-hmm. and like Irwin Hale just went off the reservation, off the planet on what the first five holes yeah. so he was out Wybrain struggled but then shot 32 on the back nine um and, and pete you know the big moment down the stretch was 17 which we're told might have a better green now that's not an island uh and he he, he 
was 132 yards, and he hit it to what three feet? Eight, I, I think, think eight feet. Eight, four, eight iron to four feet. Eight iron. made the birdie. So Wybring had kind of come back into the game on the back nine, and, and that was where Pete he slammed the door. It. Slam four feet over Wall. And then there was there was a uh, you know there's just a, a lot of you know Pete beat the best field in golf. Yep. You know he beat the best field that'll tee it up this year, and he's won. One of the big things was. You know, this is where he started to get this, you know, there were, nobody said it that he's the best player in golf, but there were hints that he might be because they're starting yeah. to drop. You know, he's won more times since 82 than anybody else. Yes. The and it, the roster of people, right? Like Halimony, Tom Watson, uh, Nicholas, you know, is later in his career, but couples who had a, was having an early career moment like no pete has won what was it 11 times i think at that point he'd won nine times at that point okay okay nine times and and okay. and watson had won eight times in that same stretch you see he needed only 12 putts on the last nine holes yeah wyvern was like whoever says like pete can't putt doesn't know what they're talking about um but like he says it's his nemesis. He's like, it's the last thing I'm going to work on. I'm going to keep working. You know, my putting I'll get to. He was working so hard on tee to green and loved the challenge of controlling the ball that he never really like there, focused on the putting. There's a quote from like, I think 82 or the 83 article <laughs> where he goes, yeah. yeah, I used to only work on my putting for like 25 minutes a day or so. Now, now I've bumped <laughs> it up to an hour. I've been putting much better. It's like, oh, I worked harder on it. I've made more putts. Uh, McDermott, Barry McDermott, who did a game story on this, it became clear that this performance in this setting made the TPC worthy of recognition as a major championship. How about that? 1985, still here litigating that. Gold standard, some whatever, 35 years later. It's too bad he didn't say it was, you know, worthy <laughs> of a gold standard. <laughs> Uh, Pete did say something, right? I saw that quote. I think this is a major, or it's a major to me, or something like that. Did you pick up on his caddy, his name? Yes, Golf Ball. Dolphus Hull, nickname Golf Ball. Uh, you know, he's like, he acts like a hungry golfer, which is Golf Ball said. Uh, he even said he was going to chew up the course, you know, birdie first two holes. Oh. Yeah, has, and Pete called it his best round ever. Yeah, somebody so. asked him before the round if if it was like if he ever knew when he was going to play a great round, and he, he said something along like sometimes you get a feeling that you can really go out there and play well, and like he said that that morning. So what are you hinting at? There was he could have been considered the best player in the PGA Tour at this point. He just won their premier event on the uh, uh you know the deepest field he'd had sustained run now over years that out won Tom Watson in a two, three year stretch. Um, he had the one of the Varden trophy in 84 for lowest scoring average prior. But so there was and, like an argument to be made. And in, the, in his last six major starts, he had a, a third and two fourths. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So that's his crowning achievement. Uh, 85 players. Yeah. Do you have anything else on that you want to go into? I think uh, nothing else there. I think okay. we can hit his kind of last moment in the sun real outside yep. of New Orleans. I didn't do it, but the, the Tournament of Champions in 86. Yeah, so TOC, it's at La Costa. 
Uh, again, dust, dust boat races. people. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Wins by six. Uh, this is January of '86, so a year after he, uh, less than a year after he won the players. He, sh- He's, he go, shoots go a go record ahead. twenty-one under par. Win by six over Marco Mira. He said, "Marco Mira, Mom. said you can't catch what you can't see." He is saying he can't see. He couldn't see those Big scores. Spread. He'd he'd won so far out. And he, he ran yeah, out so far. Couldn't see those scores. Um, so at this point, going back to January '82, Pete has won ten tournaments. He usually leads the tournament tour in driving accuracy and greens and regulation. In the same span, Tom Watson has taken nine titles. Lanny Watkins eight. Strange, Stadler and Kite five apiece. Asked to pinpoint why the 42-year-old Pete keeps getting better when his contemporaries are fading, his caddy, Golf Ball, Dolphus Hull, explains this succinctly, he, go- he goes flag on you. Translation. Have you ever heard that? No. He goes flag on you? I'm going to start using that. Translation. He's hungry to win. I have to be, says Pete. I've got a wife, a daughter, and three boys over six feet tall with big appetites. <laughs> I haven't made four million like Jack Nicholas has. <laughs> that Nicholas career earnings thing was always sort of quickly referenced and on his mind. I mean, it, it was like a goal he was chasing. chasing. Yeah, it was yeah. his goal for getting into golf was Nicholas. One thing I found interesting at this this tournament of champions was he played with Scott Verplank. Oh yeah, who had won, won the Western too. Open. You know, prior year he got envious when at the Western Open as a. Amateur. And he was still an amateur when he played. But he still went and played. Yeah, this he played the This would never TOC. happen now. <laughs> you don't think so? I don't. Is there a ball? I think, yeah. I'm sure there's. it's in stone somewhere written down. I, I feel you like don't think I don't so? think they would do it. I, like, think about think about if. You think if like Matthew Wolf won before he turned pro, turned pro no. or was in college, he doesn't go to uh, Capitol Hill? I don't think so. I think about it. If you if you win as an amateur, you wouldn't get into the FedEx Cup playoffs. Yeah, but you win the an event. Like European Tour members win events and still go to Kapalua, right? Even if they're not full time PGA Tour members. I don't know. I just think you know if you finish if you earn more FedEx Cup points than number one twenty five, but you're not a member, you're not in the FedEx Cup. That was just, it just yeah. screams to me that's the way it would be with the, the Tournament of Champions. If you're not a member, you're not in. So I just, I thought it was interesting. Like Verplank and Pete played together at least one day, maybe a couple of days. And it's just an interesting juxtaposition, right? So Pete at that point is twice his age, but his career is only like, you know, uh, 13 years old. Yeah. Decade old. So, you know, Verplank's 21, Pete's. 42 and it just not not that it's any fault of Verplanks. it's just like pete didn't have those years right he, he didn't play golf on a golf course until he was 23 i just thought it was an interesting juxtaposition juxtaposition of how people get to the game and he's playing with this guy who you know is the age when pete was like a peddler and owning real estate and traveling up and down the eastern seaboard right it was just an interesting, and that was sort of towards the end of Pete's career, forty-two. So. Yeah. All right. Did you see? Um, did you see the stuff they were talking about with Bert Plank? What he said about just, Bert Plank? 
No, what he said. I mean, so uh, he's he, the next Jack yeah, or something like said, that. Didn't he? Scott yeah. reminds me of a young Johnny Miller, Lanny Watkins, or Jack Nicholas. Well, I mean, he won the Western Open. They were college. They were as good as pros as kids. They just didn't have the name. I think Verplank is the best player on tour right now. <laughs> yeah, I did read that. Future Oak Tree game member. I mean, Verplank was insane. Yes, that's yes. a that's a spotlight, not a spotlight, wrist, a wrist, flashlight. Wrist rectum, yeah, kind of didn't help. But so uh, at that okay, point, he, at that point, because he was an amateur, yeah, he had passed up a hundred more than a hundred and ten thousand in prize money. Can you imagine money. that right now? I mean, that's like the equivalent today of like two million. Yeah, you imagine if an amateur had amassed two million dollars in earnings and hadn't taken like what? You imagine the articles, the catnip. <laughs> That's an easy win, an easy catnip win. So, Pete one putted eleven times, wins at La Costa. I thought it was an interesting. Jim Thorpe, who's like a playing companion of his, you know, also known as the Walking Muscle, scoffed at Pete's Cal Cal's rep as a powder puff hitter. Thorpe goes, all I know is when he has to hit it by me, he does. So he's like, Sneak. he's just the complete complete package. I thought, I, I can't remember who I saw in another article described him as sneaky long. Yeah, yeah. Might have been, I can't remember, DA, one of those guys. Okay, so he wins that. Um, so the one, uh, did you see this about the, the tournament? The Cal Pete role? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's definitely hit on that. So this came out in the same Barry McDermott uh, Tournament of Champions article. Had a little bit of a balloon boy tendency, maybe. Yeah, he WD'd from tournaments all the time. <laughs> but except he wouldn't cite a, a broken fingernail. He'd just be pissed at high scores, right? Yeah. So he was, he'd shoot a bad round on the weekend, he'd WD. And, uh, and he said that was conduct unbecoming of professionally. He said, sounding like a military man explaining an AWOL. Over several years, Pete had dropped out of a number of tournaments after p- shooting a high score in a round. Last spring, the PGA Tour court-martialed him, adding a regulation that denies eligibility for tour statistic championships to players who withdraw during uh, competition. The Cal Pete rule, the players call it. So, yeah, sounds like he had a tendency to just peace out. If he, but he goes, it was conduct on becoming a professional. It apparently happened at La Costa the year before, yes, right? Yes. He like he like six putted a green or five putted a green. They, they didn't get into specifics he, and walked off. Later. But he called it unprofessional. Later, there might be an explanation. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. All right. What else you got? You know, this is, he wins again in March of 86 and then starts to really, <coughs> excuse me, have their back problems. Yeah. So he WDs from the 87 PGA with this back injury. And in, in the heat of it, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, he was playing okay. okay. And then he doesn't play again until the 88 players. Um, did you read that New York Times yeah, article? Yeah, I did. Gordon White. He goes, there's hope. Calvin comes by example. Calvin Pete is back. Just sounds like back troubles were wrecking everyone on tour at that point. Mm-hmm. And Pete 
started playing well, I think, in the first couple rounds of the players. And they were like, oh, there's hope for some of these back injuries. Yeah, he ended injuries. up finishing T16. He was, you know, in contention on the weekend. And he said, I thought I could play my way out of the back pain, but I wasn't able to. I just decided to withdraw and not play until I was ready so I could play without pain. It's kind of interesting. They just give him Motrin. That's all they would do. No fusion, no microdiscectomies. Um, he goes, I've been on Motrin the last couple of years. But it like messed him up, right? Yes. Like he, I was in a daze on the course. And, and you know, it camouflaged the problem. You got to feel the butterflies in your stomach, and I didn't. And because he was no longer on medication, Motrin was prescribed at that point, I guess. Um, a prescribed painkiller. Now it's, I think you can get it everywhere. Um he said there was no longer a medication. The butterflies were moving around in his stomach again, and his accuracy, you know, hasn't been affected. You know, played just enough to qualify for the statistical standings, and he was second again in driving accuracy at that point. Um, so yeah, the Motrin messed him up as he was just playing through the pain. Yeah. One thing I found interesting in that article, he started becoming an idol and an icon of players. His accuracy in his game. You see the Mike Reed yeah. quotes like. Mike Reed was a pro at that time. He got to play with him at that 88 players. Like, this guy's my idol. Like, this is how I want to play golf. And I got to watch him and play with him a couple days. And it was like just absolute delight. I got to play with Calvin Pete. So he established himself there for almost a decade now on tours, a certain style, a certain kind of player that that guys coming out of college wanted to really emulate. So some something significant to write in this in this period, you know, where his decline, so he's got the back problems and he also divorced, uh, his wife, Christine. So, and, and he started drinking a little, so, and this is an article, I can't remember which one I pulled, but, uh, started drinking the, a little more because the anxiety would build up so much. Yeah. I think that's the, the obituary type, mm-hmm. uh, the obituary thing, the Atlanta journal constitution. Yeah. Uh, so that was kind of it though, right? Yeah. I mean, he has this little flash at the 88 players, but his back starts to go. Uh, he made like 900 some as a champions tour player. Uh, it was really no that wind. like, yeah. 82 to 86 range, uh, range, you know, got his first one in 79, but 82 to 86 was the, the heat of his, what did he get to in the world? Number six, number six. Yeah. But when the rankings, but there was it didn't update out. all the time. So you figure okay. in eighty five, eighty four, eighty four, the end of eighty four, he had to be ranked. You know, because it was a yearly ranking. It was different structure than it is now. You know, when they when he won more than anybody, he had to be up there. You know, yeah, like eighty five yeah. after that players win in the current world ranking structure, he had would have been a top five player. So this is, uh, he died in 2015, mm-hmm. I believe, in Atlanta. Uh, Pete McDaniel, who's an African-American golf writer, and has a book, I want to say, what's the name of the book? Um, uh, he, he's researched, obviously, Pete in, in much more in depth since you know his career had ended. Uh, thought that he, he had Tourette's. Did you read that? Yes. Like he was a very complex individual, I th- McDaniel. Said. I think this is His what I was alluding lies. to, like where, why he would have WD'd a lot. This could have been yeah. part of the reason. Yeah. Sorry, Pete McDaniel's book, I just want to plug it, is Uneven Lies, Chronicles of History of Black Golfers. Like he was calm and great, and then there were other days he'd get impatient. And uh, they thought it might have been Tourette's. And he, he also had a lot of demons, so McDaniel 
he's complex and had demons. Um, what was the thing that they they didn't diagnose it till like ninety nine, right? Mm-hmm. And, and is you know, McDaniel called said he's he was the king of black golf. He was beyond a shadow of the doubt the first black player who proved that we could dominate the game of golf. Uh, but in the end, he was just a regular guy who loved life and his family. Um, you know, he he died of cancer, died alone. Uh, per this article, like he, he sounds like his relationship with his second wife, they were still married, but she wouldn't go into like the specifics of it and, and his kids, um, you know, didn't sound like he had a strong relationship with them when he passed away. Um, I, I don't know that there was the incident, um, at the masters that that's in that late article, 2015. Yeah. Yeah. I, I forgot about that. So he got frustrated at the Masters. He shot at 80, 87 in 1983. And he goes, until Lee Elder, the only blacks at the Masters were caddies or waiters. To ask a black man what he feels about the traditions of the Masters is like asking him how he feels about his forefathers who were slaves. Um, I missed that quote until I read the obit. Um, the Tourette's thing's crazy. You know, Doctors said Pete had been jerking his neck since he was a kid. And when stressed, he would make noises with the ton of his roof on his mouth. So, you know, that, that it sounds like he could, that could have gone undiagnosed through his career. You think maybe that, that that's the mood swings, the impatience, the, uh, you know, the WDs. Yeah. Who knows? It's hard to, you know, diagnose after the fact, but the king of black golf per Pete McDaniel. Anything else? This this guy was this this person was the bridge, right? Yes. From those players who broke the barrier uh to Tiger. And he was the greatest black golfer. Until yeah, that, until Tiger. It's, until Tiger, of course. I think that's for his whole backstory, it's just it's one he's gotta be if you put the list together, most unique golfers, like most unique stories, I I think you'd be hard pressed to find one that's more compelling than calvin pete's upbringing and how he got into the game yeah and i think like it's i don't know it's a there's there's obviously a limitation that we don't have more of those stories i would say right now you know i think i try to talk about this a lot like i don't think the tour celebrates it's like economic diversity quite enough you know rory's dad was a bartender jason day comes from immense circumstances ricky you know his grandfather was in internment camp like I don't know that they, I think they just assume they're all rich white guys. And I don't think that's the case at all, the pro game. But one area where it is woefully lacking is African-Americans, you know? Mm-hmm. And Do you, you think know, he should be in the Hall of Fame? The real, not my Hall of Fame, the real Hall of Fame. Yes, yes. I agree, yes. 100%. I don't know how, I mean, I think there's performance and then there's also like, as a, I don't think you tell the story of the game without talking about Calvin Pete for a while. And uh, go ahead. I I found some, you know, it was kind of ironic when I was doing this research. Found some quotes from Tim Fincham in the obituaries about Calvin yeah. Pete and how he glowingly talked yeah. about him. And I was just all I could think about was like, God, this guy is in the fucking Hall of Fame, and Calvin Pete's not. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's definitely. Perhaps it spotlights an issue on on the Hall of Fame. Um, anything else on Calvin Pete? I just think like where golf is lacking right now is certainly African American representation. You know, you've seen 
more outreach via the first tee, but uh, you know there was no Calvin Pete effect and the Tiger Woods effect. I don't think has, has necessarily had the the effect on the African American population. So, uh, Pete, Calvin Pete, there he is. Someone we had to do. Someone you know again. Someone we felt like needs to be celebrated. Um, and you know, hopefully, enjoyed this spotlight again. I put him in my Hall of Fame. You are putting him in your Hall of Fame. Yeah. All right. All right. Straightest Good. driver of all time. I think that's it. I think there's like a defining characteristic. Someone you you know a reason. What would his career have been if he played golf before he was twenty three? Not professional golf, golf Just, ever yeah. on a golf course with clubs. <laughs> you have to wonder about that. Uh, okay, everyone, thank you for uh, listening. We will be back Friday with, I don't know, are we doing another spotlight? Probably not. Who knows? TBD. Maybe flashlights. So, flashlights. Okay, thank you guys for listening. We will be back with you guys on Friday. Mm-hmm.